0: Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, I I read some time ago a very sad story. There was a flood, and the river had overflowed its embankments, and and the road was flooded out, so the police had set up a a roadblock so that vehicles would not enter the flooded area. No traffic allowed. Too dangerous. And an, an older woman, she had just got a new scooter. She was very proud of her scooter. She, she came scooting along, and she saw no traffic allowed. She thought, well, I'm not traffic. I just have a little scooter. So off she went, right past the roadblock. And the policeman tried to stop her. And she was washed away. She was washed off the road and into the river. This, was, this really happened. And so the policeman did what any good policeman would do. He jumped in and tried to save her. And he managed, he pulled her out. And there she was on the bank of the river, on the edge of the flood, gasping for breath. And this man just put his life in danger to save this woman from her foolish decision and mistake. And she sat up and she said, my scooter. And she jumped right back in. She died. Yeah, it's hard to know whether it's a laugh or cry, right? You know it's often that way you know you you expect many things from someone who has been rescued but you don't expect them to turn right around and plunge themselves back into the danger from which you have saved them that's fundamentally foolishness and and ingratitude you sometimes have a with, with money. Somebody's up to their eyeballs and credit card debt, and, and then somebody comes along and says, Here, it's all wiped away. And that comes with a cost, doesn't it? And what so often happens, the people look at their empty credit cards and the massive line of credit that's now available, and there they go again. They plunge right back in again. That's the gratitude you get. What do you expect if you make a great sacrifice to help someone? If you've spent considerable time and effort and inconvenience and personal sacrifice to to save someone from a bad situation, then then mouthing the words thank you isn't enough. You want to see thank you. You want to see thankfulness in the person staying far away from the danger so that they can't fall into it again. That's what thanks looks like. On a similar way, God did not send his son to die for us, to shed his blood for us, to wash away our sins and account us perfect and, and righteous just so that we can go and sin some more. That's really not the point. We read about that in Romans chapter 6. Paul says, don't get that idea. That's not what it's about. That's not what he did it for. That is not the kind of thanks that he is looking for. Jesus didn't come to wipe away our sins so we can rack up another huge debt. Now, the Heidelberg Catechism has said all along, we're in the third part today. We've done parts one and two. And, and all along up to here, the Heidelberg Catechism has made it very clear that when it comes to my standing before God, am I acceptable? Am I good enough? Can I work hard and make myself good enough? Am I holy enough to ascend his holy hill? May I enter into his presence? The Heidelberg Catechism up to now has made it very clear that the answer is no. You can't, you aren't, you mayn't. You see, the scriptural picture for us in our natural fallen state is that we are slaves to sin. We read it in the scripture reading Romans 6. We are locked into the Egypt of our sin and sin is our implacable taskmaster who is literally working us to death. The wages of sin is death. And by nature we are a lost cause. There is no hope. There is no way out. We do not have the means or the strength to free ourselves. And so God comes to us. He comes with power and he saves us with sovereign grace. He covers our sins with the blood of Jesus, our Passover lamb. He brings us out of the Egypt of our sins, and he sets us free. He makes us pass through the waters of baptism, which is our Red Sea. And then what's next? What's the next stop on the way to the promised land? Well, Mount Sinai, that's what's next. A nation of liberated slaves comes to the foot of the mountain. And hears those glorious words which we hear every Sunday. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Do you hear that, people of God? You are no longer groveling slaves. You are free sons and daughters of the living God. Now, what does that freedom look like? What has God freed us to be? And the answer comes from Mount Sinai. As God shows us his character in the law, The answer is this. I have freed you to be like me because before you reflected your old slave driver. You lived in fear and hatred. But now I want you to reflect my character, to walk before me in love, to love God, to love your neighbor. Love sums up the law, the law, which the apostle says is the perfect Law of liberty. The goal here is paradise regained. God wants his people to live in the promised land flowing with milk and honey. His glory will dwell in the midst of his people. They will taste and see that the Lord is good. God says to them, you will live in my presence in the light of my love and it shall be well with you. That's what's that's what he's got in store for his people. Now there's a big difference between where they come from and where they're going. They're coming from the Egypt of oppression, and they're going to the promised land of freedom. But there's a process that needs to happen to get there. And so there at Mount Sinai, the next step is okay, let's let's start. Let's start walking. Because we have a desert to cross. There's a process that now happens. You see, Israel was passive in being set free. God did it all. By his mighty arm, he brought salvation. But now, Israel has to respond. Israel has to lean into that salvation, has to embrace it, has to walk with it, literally. They have to walk with it. They have to walk by faith through a big, hot, dry, dusty desert with lots of giant enemies and fortified cities to be taken down at the end of the journey. See, The process of entering into their inheritance is a process in which they are to be active. The glorious thing is is that when they are faithful and active and they walk by faith and they fight by faith and they make conquest of the promised land by faith this is not in their own power. It's not them, but it's the Spirit of God working powerfully in and through them. You wanna know how we can know that it's not them? Well, look at the difference between the battle to capture Jericho and the first battle to capture Ai. The battle of Jericho, All they do is walk around the city, blow the trumpet, boom, the walls fall down, and they take Jericho. With Ai, they fight and are defeated because they can't do it in their own strength. Only the power of the Spirit. Now these things, says the apostle in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, these things were written for our instruction. They are a picture of what God has done and is doing on a cosmic scale. The whole history of of the people of God and and Egypt and the desert and the promised land, it's like a little, I don't know what they're called in English, a a little setup. When you're going to build a great big mall or a great big development, sometimes you have a little mock-up, a a toy-sized mock-up, so you can get an idea of what it looks like. That's, that's, that's the situation in the Old Testament. What happens to the people of God is like a little uh, picture of the real thing, the cosmic work that God is doing on a cosmic scale. God has redeemed us. And as we walk by faith in the direction of the promised land, we praise him and we thank him with every step, with every battle, with every victory. Every time love for sin dies a little more and love for God grows, then we say, yes. This is so true. I can see it happening before my eyes. I can see it, I can see it happening in my life. The Holy Spirit is renewing me. He's transforming me from glory to glory after his image. And when people, when God's people live in the power of God's truth and love, then other people sit up and take notice. The whole goal of Israel living in communion with God in the promised land was that they would be a light to the nations, that others would come to the light, that they would be filled with the holy jealousy like the queen of Sheba. And they would say, I want a piece of that. I I want a part of that. I want to participate in that. And as the kingdom, and the power, and the glory of Christ more and more take hold of our lives, people hear Christ in our words. They see Christ in our actions. They see the deep love of Christ in the church, in our marriage relationships. And that is the most powerful contributing factor to successful Evangelism. By our godly walk of life, we do indeed win our neighbors for Christ. Now, these are beautiful, glorious gospel truths. You would think that everybody would be on board with this. Just rejoice, give thanks. God has saved us. Let's get out there and show, us, show Him how much we love him, how much we want to thank him, how much we want to live for him, how much we want to obey him. If you love me, says Jesus, you keep my commandments. So let's go. But unfortunately, that's not the way it is always. There are horrifying undertones to the story of redemption and liberation undertones of ingratitude let's let's turn to exodus 14 for a moment exodus 14 verse 10 now this is a little later on they've already some things have already happened obviously they've they've left uh, egypt they haven't crossed the red sea yet and they're in a bit of a a bind because the red sea is in front of them and hasn't been opened yet and the armies of Egypt are coming up after them and they're they're afraid so they lift up their eyes they see the Egyptians marching after them they fear greatly they cry out to the Lord verse 10 Exodus fourteen eleven. they said to Moses is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness what have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt what do you go save us for This is painful. We don't like it. Why didn't you just leave us in our oppression? Leave us alone in our misery. And then they say some interesting words here. Verse 12. Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better that we may serve the Egyptians. Better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. You see, as Moses came preaching the gospel to the people and saying, God's going to take you out of here, it hurt. There were times when the Pharaoh, when the Pharaoh said, You know what? These people are lazy. Make them work harder. They're going to get their own straw. And the people said, Moses, you know, you're trying to help us, but it, it's painful. It's making life worse. Go away. Leave us alone in our misery. Don't come with all this good news business. It hurts. They're complaining. They're not happy to be freed. There's a lot of ingratitude. And what does Moses say? He says, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you. Have only to be silent. Just be quiet. Just stop complaining. Stop grumbling. Stop saying how tough your life is. Just shut up and wait on the Lord. You know, I don't think it takes too much for us to make the connection to today, does it? How often we as sinners, we don't want people to help us. We don't want the gospel applied. We don't like it when family members say, hey, look what God says. You're not living right. You you need to repent. We're like, leave me alone. We don't like it when the elders come and talk to us. Leave me alone. Leave me in my misery. Leave me in my sin. I know it's not good, but coming out of it hurts, and I'm just not interested. That's ingratitude. Getting saved from our sin is uncomfortable. It's inconvenient. It hurts. And so it's easy for us to complain. And often it's moments, you know, the people of Israel here are just about to get baptized into, into the, the cloud in Moses. They're about to go through the Red Sea. That's a picture of baptism like we had this morning. Because baptism, the water, separates God's people from God's enemies and washes away all the sin. And all, everything which, which would try to destroy us. So they're about to get baptized. And It often happens with new believers as well. As you, as you speak the gospel into their lives, as you evangelize them, you, you see that the closer they come to, to receiving the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, it seems that the more the devil puts up roadblocks, and the harder they fight. And if you're, if you're speaking the gospel into someone's life and sharing with them the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you notice it getting harder and harder and then rejecting more and more, sometimes that's a sign that the Holy Spirit is about to break through. Don't give up too easily. And this ingratitude... This ingratitude rears its ugly head throughout the journey through the desert. Every time the people face a trial or an affliction, some or all of them start grumbling, start complaining. Well, things were better in Egypt. We had water there. Things were better in Egypt. Remember the fresh veggies we had? Even when we were slaves, we we ate better than this, this, this manna that we get every day. And so often, they just... Don't like the process. It's too much work. We just want to turn around and we want to go back. It gets worse. Because even on the point of entering the promised land, they want to go back. Let's turn to Numbers 14 for a moment. Numbers 14. And we'll look at verses 1 to 4. Now, they've just received the majority and the minority report of the, of the spies. The majority, the vast majority of the spies say in their report, you know what, we can't do this. The enemy is too big. The enemy is too powerful. The enemy is too strong. We're just not able to, to, to take this land. And you see the reaction of the people in Numbers 14. All the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled. Here they go again. All the people of Israel grumbled. Unthankfulness against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Why don't you just leave us in our sin and misery? Why insist on saving us and taking us into the promised land where we can dwell in the presence of God? Whatever made you think we would like that? Just leave us alone. Or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? you hear that? Back to Egypt. Land of Egypt. Back to Egypt. Here they go in verse 4. And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Do they understand What they're saying. Do they understand what they're doing? The promised land is to be the place where God dwells with his people, a place of freedom and life, and joy and prosperity and communion with God. This is what people were made to be and to do, and how they were made to live. It's a little taste of paradise regained. And Egypt represents the total opposite of all of that. Here's the point. Living by faith, walking by faith, fighting by faith. That is what thankfulness looks like. Fleeing from sin, turning our backs on sin. Setting our face to come into the presence of God. No matter what stands in our way. That is what faith looks like. You see, it's so easy to run back to Egypt. To run away from the fight. It's the easy way. It's easy to give up. When your sin is clinging to you too tightly and you're sick and tired of fighting it, it's just easy to give in. You know that, right? We all know that. How easy it is to give in to sins. Oh, wow, I don't have to fight anymore. Just give in to whatever sin, whatever temptation is happens to be my pet personal temptation. It's the very essence of ingratitude. Well, you know what we're saying to the Lord Jesus We just give in. We give up. We're saying, Lord Jesus, you moved heaven and earth to set me free from sin. Lord Jesus, you suffered eternal agony, the eternal agony of hell for me. I like that. I like that. I'm justified by faith. I love your sovereignty and salvation. I love that I didn't have to do anything except be silent and wait on the Lord. Justification is great, Lord. But now... The journey of sanctification is too long and too hard and too inconvenient and too painful and too uncomfortable So just leave me alone. I'm just going to go back to the Egypt of my sin, to my old slave driver, and go roll around and wallow in my sin a little bit more. Because living a life of good works, well, yeah, good works, that's, that's, uh, isn't that pharisaical? Isn't that unreformed? Just let me wallow in my sin. You see, this kind of ingratitude brings no thanks and praise to God. And if you're living, if you're living in this way, my brother, my sister, with the spirit of these Israelites in the desert, saying, oh man, I long for the flesh pots of Egypt. If you're giving up the fight, And if you're actually sometimes justifying it with theology, you need to question Is my life really worshiping God? Am I really thankful to God for His benefits? Am I really praising Him as I hold on to my sin, as I fall back into my sin, as I give up and float along in my sin? And we have to ask ourselves another question. If I'm okay with sin in my life, unrepented of sin, sin which is not fought against, if I'm okay with that in my life, then I have to ask myself this question Am I really a believer? It's a frightening thought. But look what the catechism says We may be assured of our faith by its fruits. In another place in the catechism, we confess that if you got a good tree, it is impossible that someone who has been grafted into Christ by true faith should not bring forth fruits of thankfulness. So the contrary is true as well. If you do an evaluation and inventory of your life and of your heart and you see no good fruit, then you have to ask yourself if maybe you need a new heart. You need to pray to the Holy Spirit to take out your heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. Living, embracing sin not only doesn't praise God, not only puts into question whether we have faith in the first place or not, but it certainly also does not help win our neighbor for Christ, does it? I mean, what does the world see? Oh, look at that nice Christian. Saved by grace. What a beautiful doctrine they preach. Look at their life. Wallowing in sin. An angry person. A perverse person. A greedy person. It doesn't matter what sin it is. Or maybe a whole bunch of them all together. How attractive. I really want to be like that. Not. Well, here's the good news, brothers and sisters. And we have that good news in question. out 87 of the catechism as well. There is no dual citizenship. In the kingdom of heaven. You see you can't have one foot in Egypt. And one foot in the promised land. You cannot self identify. As a liberated child of God. And live at the same time. As a slave to sin. We are saved by grace. Through faith. Not works. Oh that's true. That's so true. But faith looks like something. If you love me. Says the Lord Jesus. You keep my commandments let's turn for a moment to psalm 95 psalm 95 pay attention to how the psalm begins and how the psalm ends psalm 95 starts off thanking god praising god for his benefits for his salvation for his sovereign work oh come Let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. That's what faith, thankful faith looks like. It looks like worship. It looks like submission. It looks like bowing the knee and confessing with the tongue that Jesus is Lord. It means submitting to the commands of the great king and rejoicing in obedience to him. But you know what unthankfulness looks like? Well, let's keep reading. Today, if you hear his voice... Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work, for 40 years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. That's what question answer 87 says. The Lord say 32 there on page 549. Can those be saved who do not turn to God from their ungrateful and impenitent walk of life? By no means. They shall not enter his rest. People that hear the voice But keep going in their own ways. Not his ways. They're shut out. People that choose to stay in the deathly embrace of sin. People that love sin more than they love Christ. They have no place in the kingdom. You know what? That is so good. That is great news. You know, the gospel isn't very Canadian and polite, is it? And Canadians always want to include everybody. The whole idea of excluding anyone is, is, is frightening to our sensitivities, our cultural sensitivities. And there are some good aspects to that. It's good to include people. But not everyone. Look at the kind of people that the scripture says. And these are, these are quotes from 1 Corinthians and, and from Ephesians. Look at the kind of people that the scripture says shall not enter his rest. Unchaste people, idolaters, adulterers, thieves. Greedy persons, drunkards, slanderers, robbers. Know what the good news is? Good news is that in the new heavens and the new earth, when we will live forever in the presence of our Savior, there will be no one that loves sexual perversion. That's good news. There There won't be people that love feeding their souls with pornography. that produce pornography and that exploit women and children there won't be people that break faith and break relationships that steal other people's things that covet other people's things that destroy other people's lives that practice acts of violence against others that that ruin other people's reputation that steal or do other nasty things to each other they just won't exist anymore Not in a way in which they can do those things. They will only exist forever under the righteous judgment of God. So that's good news. Can you imagine the new heavens and the new earth where God said, well, everybody's welcome. It's all inclusive. We, we shut no one out. That wouldn't be heaven, would it? But That would be hell on earth. So, what do we need to do? The confession this afternoon confronts us. We need to look at our sin. We need to confess our sin. We need to confess our ingratitude. We need to look to the blood. We need to look to the cross. We need to look to the Christ. We need to cry. We need to cry out, O Lord. We need to cry out with David in Psalm 51. Lord, take not your Holy Spirit from me, but create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew in me a right spirit within me. You see, God is sovereign in justification. He does it all. We just stay silent. We wait on the Lord. But God is sovereign in sanctification too. We can't lift a finger in sanctification. We need to be sanctified and to grow in sanctification and to grow in good works only in the power of his spirit. Working in us those good works that he has prepared beforehand for us to walk in. He's prepared them from eternity. It's all from him. And to him and through him. Now we sang Psalm 30. And we're going to sing the rest of it in a moment. And as we sang those words, what, what, what did we sing to the Lord? Just take a look at Psalm 30 in the book of praise for a moment. You'll have it ready for when we sing after the sermon. <clears throat> we sang, Lord, you lifted me. All praise and glory to you because you've lifted me out of the depths you healed me you spared me you saved me all i did was supplicate that's all i did i just cried out and you saved me now look at stanza three which we're going to sing presently i made the mistake of thinking that I could live the Christian life in my own strength. I said in my prosperity that none could shake or trouble me. But it was you, Lord. It was you all along who made my mountain firm and strong. For when you hid your face, I stumbled. It's a bad idea to think that we depend on God's sovereign grace to justify us. And then we can, we can figure out the sanctification bit. We can do some good works and please God. No way. We need to cry. We need to supplicate. We need to plead for mercy. Oh, Lord, I cannot stand for even a moment in this great cosmic battle against the powers of darkness. Come to my aid. Come to my help. Be my shield, be my rock, be my deliverer. What happens when we do that, brothers and sisters? What happens when we just cry out? And say, Lord, work in me. Work out in my heart and life the, the the logical consequences and fruit of my justification in my sanctification. What happens when we cry out and ask him to do that? we we'll a look at stanza five. He turns our mourning into dancing. He strips off the sackcloth of our despair. And when we, by the power of the Holy Spirit, are victorious over sin and temptation, then we don't say, hey, wow, great job, believer, you did it now. No, we say, oh, Lord God, for your great favor, I will give thanks and praise forever. Amen. Let's sing those words now. Psalm 30, stanzas 3, 4, and 5.